Tonight we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. And for context, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. So if you want to pull up your Bibles or, or pull up the scripture passage on your computers and read along with me, we're using the NIV translation, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Starting the reading in verse 3. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. This was Paul praying. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Will you pray with me asking the Lord to bless this time as we look at his word? Now, Father, we ask that you would enlighten your word to us, that we may gain comfort, hope, peace from the words before us. For we know that what Paul has prayed for, Christ has purchased. This prayer is bound upon the promise that you will complete the work that you have started in us. And the work which you have started in us is the perfect work accomplished by Christ in his death and resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I struggled, um, I struggled with considering what, what sermon should I preach for you all on, on this Good Friday. This Good Friday, as I stand up here in the pulpit to an empty congregation, an empty sanctuary, pews, nobody sitting in them. Um, we're all sheltering in place. I, I, uh, I wondered, what sort of sermon should I preach on this Good Friday when it would be our tradition that we would come here this evening and participate in the Lord's Supper, receiving from Christ's very own table his body and his blood, uh, feeding us spiritually that we may receive the grace of God in those means. Um, I struggle because typically on, uh, on Good Friday, the, the, uh, the attitude or the, um, the feeling of the service is a bit more somber, a bit more downcast. Uh, we're talking about Christ. We're talking about him 
crucified, and, and the service takes that tone. But here in Good Friday, April 10th, 2020, I felt that what we need now more than ever as the people of God is, is not only a reminder that our Savior died for us, but that he didn't stay dead. And that the life we live now is a resurrection life. It is a life purchased not only by Christ's death, but by his resurrection. So I mean to emphasize that as we gain hope from these words. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 but before I get to that, I want to ask a question to you all. I want, to, want you to think about this. What is prayer? What is prayer? This is what Paul is doing here at the beginning of his letter to the church in Philippi. He is praying for them. What is prayer? And I tried to think about the simplest explanation that I could give for prayer, and I came up with this. Prayer is faith, reaching out to God from our helplessness. Prayer is faith, reaching out to God from our helplessness. And so many of us right now are feeling more helpless than we ever have before. Prayer is faith, it's believing and reaching out to God from our helplessness. You see, that's why it's important that we see that the beginning of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is a prayer. Paul, as an apostle, as the founder of their church, he's powerless to help the church through their present circumstances. The church of Philippi is surrounded on all sides by discouragement. The discouragement of sending their friend Epaphroditus to go visit Paul, but thinking he must have died or got lost along the way because they have not heard from him. The discouragement of living in a Roman colony and feeling the pressures of Roman society upon them, pushing them towards living back in that pagan culture and forsaking the Christianity, the faith that they have. The discouragement of those from the Jewish background saying they needed to fulfill these laws, to do these things in order to be a Christian. They have this discouragement all around them. And Paul, he can't do anything for them. But what he is incapable of doing, he knows that God is infinitely capable of accomplishing so what does Paul do? He prays. He places his faith in God and reaches out to him from his helplessness. Asking the Lord to give these Christians in Philippi what they stand in need of to face the challenges of their day. And his prayer for them is also a prayer for us. 
You see, in this season of uncertainty and anxiety, this is my prayer for you as your pastor. And when we pray to God, we are placing our hope, not in what we can accomplish, not in what we can do, but in Him and what He has done for us and has promised to do for us in the death and resurrection of Christ. So our, our theme this evening, Paul's prayer, shows us what it means to live on earth as citizens of heaven. Paul's prayer shows us what it means to live on earth as citizens of heaven. In the church of Philippi, they were called to live as citizens of heaven in a Roman colony that placed so much emphasis and importance upon their Roman citizenship. And right now, more than ever, it's important that we consider what it means to live as citizens of heaven in this world. First, he prays that they would be full of the love of Christ. Second, he prays that they would be fearless on the day of Christ. And third, he prays that they will be filled with the fruit of Christ. So let's look at that first one, full of the love of Christ. Verse 9, this is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more. Paul desires that the love they have already expressed to him in being a continued supporter of his ministry and in sending their friend Epaphroditus to Paul, who's in prison, would grow in its expression toward each other. A very similar phrase is used by the apostle in his letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 says this, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. This prayer clarifies the direction of the love that Paul was praying for. You see, this love is not a generic affection characterized by feelings, but is meant to be directed toward others in the community by word and by deed. How are you loving by word and deed in this season as Christians? The love Paul is praying the church in Philippi will abound more and more in is precisely the kind of love that Christ showed in his act of self-emptying on the cross. And later, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul will say to the Philippians, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Love for God and love for neighbor were united in the death and resurrection of our Savior. So when we look then, not to our present circumstances, as we listen to this prayer of our love abounding more and more, but rather we look back to the love of Christ displayed on the cross, and we look forward to the end hope, the resurrection hope that we have, we're guarded from the discouragement that can hinder our growth. There are so many discouraging things around us that can hinder our growth in this time. And Paul's saying... He wants our love to abound more and more. And I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, pray that your love may abound more and more. Ah, but there's more. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. John Stott once said, 
quote, nothing perhaps is more harmful than the easy good nature which is willing to tolerate everything. And this is often mistaken for the Christian frame of mind. Love must fasten itself on the things which are worthy of loving, and it cannot do so unless it is wisely directed. In our day and age, when we hear the word love, and we think of rom-coms, and we think of love as a feeling of emotion that compels us, like the myth of Cupid and his arrows, the kind of love that Paul is speaking of here is more than that. You see, for the Corinthian church, in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul contrasted love and knowledge. 1 Corinthians, 1, or 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? And then he also expressed the futility of love without knowledge in that famous chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul said, that If I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. But here in the letter to the Philippians, Paul does neither of these things. Rather, he prays for a multiplication of love in the realms of knowledge and discernment. Now that word, knowledge, in the Greek language, 15 of the 20 times this word appears in the New Testament, Paul is the one using it. He likes this word. Um, a, a, A Greek lexicon defines it as this, limited to religious or moral things, consciousness of sin, or knowledge of God in Christ. You see, Paul, therefore, he's praying that the love which the Philippians have will grow in its moral expression, informed by their newly deepened knowledge of God through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ came into this world and died on a cross and was raised three days later to save us from our sins and to give us eternal life. That's the knowledge that we need to grow in. The object of this knowledge is not made explicit here in verse 9. What is the object of this knowledge, right? What are we growing more knowledgeable in? But later in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he will state that the greatest goal of his life would be to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul said, I give up all things that I considered before to be valuable in order to know Christ. It's knowledge of Christ that informs the love that the Philippians are called to have for God and for each other. And it's the knowledge of Christ that informs the love that we are called to have for God and for each other. This is what Paul will call having the mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ. Understanding that our citizenship is in heaven and that that was purchased by the humiliation of our Savior informs how we are to live together now on earth. Does our love look like the love that Christ showed? And that other word, depth of insight. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's often used in the book of Proverbs to denote moral understanding. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 uses a similar word. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 says, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So if knowledge 
is the possession of information, right? I want your love to abound in knowledge. Then depth of insight is wisdom. Wisdom is one's practical ability to utilize the information that you possess appropriately. Knowledge is knowing something. Wisdom is using that knowledge. The love the Philippians already possess, Paul says. You already have this love. But he says, I pray that it would abound more and more. He prays that it will grow not only in its understanding of what God has done for them in Christ, but also in the ways that this knowledge should affect their behavior toward each other. One commentator writes, The content of the petition was that the love of God within the readers might increase beyond all measure, and that as it increased, it might penetrate more deeply into that personal relation with God through Christ, as well as into all types of situations involving practical conduct. Being full of the love only Christ can give comes from knowing Him intimately and living in accordance with that knowledge. Simply stated, love that is filled with the knowledge of God and Christ is expressed in holy living, particularly in the words we say and the actions we do toward each other in our communities. So as Paul prayed for the Philippians, I pray for you. Is your love growing not only in your understanding of what God has done for you in Christ, but also in how that impacts the way that you live and act towards each other? I pray that your love would abound more and more, that you would be full of the love of Christ, our Savior. That's the first point. The second point is fearless on the day of Christ. And verse 10 says, so that you may be, may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. So look at that first phrase, so that you may be able to discern what is best. Discern what is best is often used in the New Testament in the Greek language to describe an examination process, such as the testings of metal or money. Not only the test itself is represented by this word, but also the results of the test. In chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul will say of his previous life, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet, when he met Christ, he considered all these achievements rubbish in comparison. A Christian, therefore, is supposed to ask for an expansion of their understanding in love rather than an expansion of an understanding in law. One commentator writes, this may sound like the relativism of situation ethics. Love, not law, guides the choices made in the situations of life. But whereas situation ethics generally will not allow love to be informed by any absolutes, Paul prays for love to be guided by knowing Christ, the ultimate standard for true love. Love that is filled with knowledge and discernment motivates one to test various courses of action and make a choice in accordance with the love displayed by Christ. And so, that old, uh, that old bracelet trend that happened back when I was in children's church, WWJD actually has some biblical warrant. What would 
Jesus do? How would Jesus show his love in this particular situation, in these particular circumstances? The second part of that phrase, not only discerning, but what is best? What does that mean? Uh, We use a word called adiaphora in theology. Adiaphora means um, things that are insignificant that we can differ about. Things that we can differ about that are not essential matters. So we can have varying views of the end times. We can be premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. We can have varying views on this doctrine or that doctrine that don't put us outside of orthodoxy. But the word here is the antonym of adiaphora. And it's the ability to discern what is important, what is superior, of what counts or what matters most. So the question we have before us here is Paul's not only praying that they would be able to discern what is good and what is evil, as important as that may be, but Paul's praying for something else entirely. He's, he's asking that the Lord would grant them the ability to choose between what is good and what is best. What is good and what is best. And what does this mean for us? That our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what is best. You see, the Christian's primary focus in the midst of all of life's decisions and various circumstances, the one which should direct us at all times, the one that I'm praying is directing you in this season of life, in this hardship right now, is what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 14. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Living together on earth as citizens of heaven means not losing heart because of present circumstances. The Philippians were dealing with pressures on every side. We're dealing with pressures and circumstances and difficulties on every side, but seeing every trial as an opportunity to choose the excellent things of Christ. How is your shelter in place giving you the opportunity to show love to your spouse, to your children in ways that you have not been able to? How are these trying times when people are falling on financial difficulties giving you an opportunity? Not simply to choose between what is good and what is evil, but what is good and what is best. Reevaluating your priorities, reevaluating what life is all about. How are you pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Brothers and sisters, please don't lose heart in these present circumstances. See these present circumstances 
as a God-ordained, providentially placed opportunity for you to choose the excellent things of Christ. He continues in verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. I think a better wording here is pure and blameless on the day of Christ or for the day of Christ. One commentator observes that the preparation of his churches for the judgment day of Christ was a characteristic petitionary and thanksgiving theme of the apostle. Paul says this all the time. It is his prayer that his churches that he founded, the Christians that he had a relationship with, that he was praying for, that they would be prepared for the day of Christ. In verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul already mentioned his trust that God would complete the work he had begun in the Philippians at the day of Jesus Christ. He said in verse 6, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So this is his second mention of the second coming. Not typically a topic for a Good Friday sermon, but it's one that we need We need our eyes pointed not only back towards the dead, dying Savior, but we need our eyes pointed forward to the living Savior who is coming again. His desire is that the church in Philippi would live together now in light of that final day. And the word he uses for pure here, that you may be pure, is a a word meaning moral purity. And one commentator talks about the etymology of the word and where this word was derived from. He says, although the etymology of this adjective is not certain, it appears to be derived from the word for sun. That means the warmth and light of the sun and from the Greek word to judge. If this is so, then the picture it conjures up is of someone bringing something, a garment or the like, out into the sunlight in order to see clearly if it's unsoiled, free of stains. And through usage, therefore, the word came to mean spotless. And from Plato's day onward, this idea of spotlessness or cleanness in the physical realm moved into the idea of purity in the moral realm. That kind of idea is where our modern idiom comes from. He wouldn't be able to stand the light of day. And that is a person who seems to be all put together, but when you get them out into the real world, when you get them in the light of the day, then their weaknesses, their faults are exposed. And Paul prays that their love for God would be expressed in and through their pure motives toward each other. Philippians 2 verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the kind of purity that he's speaking of, purity of motive, possessing the same mind and the same love, the mind and love of Christ Jesus. And that word, blameless, can have an active or a passive meaning. If it's an active meaning, then it it comes across as saying, having not caused offense to others. But if it's a passive meaning, it means that you are blameless in and of yourself. And in the context of the letter of the Philippians, Paul's concerned that they have unity where there's disunity in the church. 
We can see it. The importance of Paul saying that on that day of Christ, we pray that you would have not caused offense to others, not caused another to stumble, that your life and your purity and your purity of motives toward each other would be expressed and seen, that you have not caused another to stumble. But maybe we can see these two ideas as one, that the Philippians not stumbling before God was based upon their having not caused others to stumble. To look out for each other. To consider each other. You see, Paul's prayer for the believers in Philippi, as well as us today, is that we would grow more and more in the love and mind of Christ expressed through moral living. So that, that we would have pure motives toward each other and in our desire to live before God purely, we would not cause one another to stumble. And this all culminates in Paul's desire that they would be fearless on the day of Christ's return. What does it mean to be fearless on the day of Christ's return? It means that we have no need to feel shame. We know that we've been purchased we know that the work that God began in us, he has been bringing it to completion. We come before Christ on that day knowing that we are prepared, not because we've done anything in our own strength, but because of the grace God has shown us in, our, in the death of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. Paul not only prays for this as part of their progressive sanctification, that they would be growing in godliness and holiness, but he also prays for this as a promise he knows God will keep because of Christ. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at that day of Christ. So what he was sure of in verse 6, he now prays for with more specificity in verse 10. How are we going to be brought to completion on that day of Christ? It is because as our love abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, we will be able to discern what is best and then be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. You see, our God is a God who sovereignly decrees the means as well as the ends. What he has promised we strive for by the grace of that promise. Living together on earth as citizens of heaven means having our focus upon the coming day of Christ, not as a fearful motivator, but as a great hope that overcomes the discouragement of our present circumstances, allowing us to press on by keeping in step with the Spirit. You see... The fear that is in the people who are living today, the anxiety that they are experiencing, the people who are stocking up on everything that they can, they are afraid because they think this is the end. This is not the end. Brothers and sisters, this is not the end. We know what the end is, the day of Christ. And that end which we await, that's what people who do not have Christ should be fearful of. 
but for those of us who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We are fearless on the day of Christ because of what he's done. So full of the love of Christ, Paul prays, fearless on the day of Christ, and lastly, filled with the fruit of Christ. Verse 11, on the day of Christ, we'll be pure and blameless because we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ. I'm being filled, the word here, meaning fill, complete, finish, fulfill. And once again, Paul's emphasizing that there's a present possession that the Philippians have. They've already been filled in part, but he's calling for its completion. And one commentator writes, what Paul wants is for them to stand on that day full of the fruit of righteousness. But to do so, they must now be living out such righteousness. Here again, as in verse 6, the already but not yet of life in Christ is played out before their eyes. But what is this word, fruit of righteousness, this phrase, fruit of righteousness, what does it mean? Well, the righteousness being described here is not the transfer of Christ's righteousness at the time of conversion, but rather it is the evidence that we have received that righteousness in the form of good works which is revealed on the day of Christ. One commentator writes, the word fruit here refers to the display of ethical qualities such as, in Galatians chapter 6, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, that are the result or the outcome or the product of this righteousness. And it's made more clear here when we hear the, the words that Paul is praying, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. Another commentator writes, the apostle emphasizes that such a crop can only be given and produced through Jesus Christ. The stress is thus laid on the practical outworkings of their spiritual growth, and it turns their minds from any notions of self-effort to total dependence on Jesus Christ. So let it be known that Paul's prayer for the Philippians and my prayer for you is not for you to get up, work harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do more. The prayer is that the way that we abound more and more in love, and that love is a knowledgeable and discerning love that helps us to choose what is best so that we can be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, that all these and these things only come through Jesus Christ. In verse 6, Paul already told the Philippians of his confidence that God would complete the work he had started in them. And therefore, verses 9 through 11 are simply an explanation of how God will accomplish that work. Paul is talking about character formation by divine means. And he foresees its end full conformity to the image of the risen Jesus. If we desire to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, it is not a self-righteousness. It is a righteousness that comes through Christ. 
to the glory and praise of God. It's Paul's last words in this prayer. See, the final phrase of Paul's prayer is not meant to be only understood as a doxological close to his prayer, although he uses this terminology a lot in the end of his prayers. It's also a thoughtful conclusion that places all the things which he had prayed and given thanks for in verses 3 through 11 rightly into the hands of who they truly belong to. First, the Philippians are to recognize and acknowledge God's power and grace at work among them. Second, their neighbors are also to do the same upon seeing the evidence of the power and grace of God on display in their lives. This is what it means when Paul says, to the glory and praise of God. Union to Christ results in sanctification through Christ. Therefore, being filled with the fruit of righteousness is a work of God that brings glory to Him alone. Don't get me wrong. This does not mean that human actions do not give glory to God, but rather that those human actions find their origin in the work that God has accomplished in us through Christ. Because the fruits of righteousness that are produced in our lives come by our connection with the vine, Jesus Christ, therefore they exude forth in praise to God. When Paul prays that Christians would be filled with the fruit that comes through Christ on that final day, he's asking the Lord to grant the Philippians all that they stand in need of as we live together on earth as citizens of heaven. And when I pray for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would be filled with the fruit that comes through Christ on that final day, I am praying in faith, to God, from my helplessness, that you would be granted all you stand in need of as you seek to live together on earth as citizens of heaven. I'm praying that our citizenship would be clearly seen in our community and by those outside of it here in our church, and here in South Holland. I'm praying that our sanctification would give way to our glorification, being conformed and transformed into the likeness of Christ. So what is prayer? Prayer is faith reaching out to God from our helplessness. And just as Paul reached out to God, asking for his blessing upon the Christians in Philippi and their continued growth together in the midst of their dire and difficult circumstances, I am praying for you in these times. Yes, we are living in the midst of a crisis that could cause us to lose sight of our goal, could cause us to feel disappointed and discouraged. But it is precisely in those times that we are called to see what God has already begun in us. And by the grace of the promise that he will complete it, we are called to strive on together as we learn more and more each day what it means to live in the light of that coming day.
as we learn what it means to live on earth as citizens of heaven. Paul's prayer shows us what it means to live on earth as citizens of heaven. And I pray, dear brothers and sisters, that as we looked at the word tonight, you were encouraged and brought hope. That you learned a little bit more what it means to live in this broken and cursed world as citizens of the world to come. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. Pray that it would do its work in us. And we pray, Lord, that the work which you've begun in us, you will bring to completion on the day of Christ. That we, your people, may be pure and blameless on that day. And that today we may live in light of that day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.